Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On October 29, 2012, Hurricane Sandy, also known as Superstorm Sandy, made landfall in New Jersey. Sandy was the second costliest hurricane in U.S. history, second to Katrina. It was also the deadliest of the 2012 hurricane season, affecting the Caribbean and much of the East Coast. Sandy's impact on New York City, and Brooklyn in particular, was enormous. Neighborhoods like Red Hook and parts of Coney Island are still dealing with the effects of Sandy today. Sandy will be a turning point in Brooklyn's history. In this episode, we consider what it means to document the impact and significance of this storm. Sandy was a total game changer. Um, my agenda was to localize the issue of climate change, and Sandy did that like a hundred times more than I ever could have, right? I mean, it really brought it home. It really brought it to public consciousness in a way that I never could have. What I do think photography can do is shift attention. The issue is the communities that, you know, are underrepresented and how um, that's where I think photographers have a real power. I mean, you can decide what to shoot. The archivist profession has said, can we be objective? And the answer is no, we cannot. And, and similarly, as a Brooklynite in the midst of this hurricane, could I be objective and separate myself from the, the documentation of this storm and its aftermath? The answer is no. And I saw a rush of water coming from the ocean. And that wasn't a lot, a lot, but I saw it and I, ran downstairs and said to my husband, um, I just saw something. I don't think it's good. <laughs> then I looked, we went outside and we could see the water coming. And then we looked to the bay and was like, yeah, that's not good. And then just almost, it seemed like in less than 10 minutes, already we had four feet of water. We're thrilled to be talking to Robin Michaels today on this episode of Flatbush in Maine. Robin is a photographer whose work investigates the urban waterfront with a focus on environmental issues. She's also a professor of communication design at New York College of Technology. Robin, welcome to Flatbush in Maine. Thank you so much, Julie, uh, for having me. Robin, beginning in 2010, you started a photography project uh, looking at coastal communities, and the project was called Castles Made of Sand. Tell us about this project, its genesis, and the kinds of things that were involved. I wanted to find a way to localize the issue of climate change. Remember, this is pre-Sandy. And so sea level rise seemed to me to be the way that New York City would be most directly impacted by climate change. And so I began to photograph in the low-lying areas that I thought would be impacted and in 2012 quickly realized uh, that's a present tense, um, are being impacted. And tell us about some of the neighborhoods and some of the places I think, you know, especially in Brooklyn. What were some of the places you were looking at? 
I photographed the uh, obviously the industrial waterfront going from Greenpoint to Sunset Park, but also it's really well. It, this is an issue. It's Southern Brooklyn. We say mm. South Brooklyn. We tend to mean Sunset Park and Red Hook, yeah. um, but South Brooklyn, Coney Island. Sheepshead Bay, Garrison Beach, Canarsie that are really going to be significantly impacted. And it goes considerably further inland than most of us hmm. think. Um, really, almost to Avenue X is the flood um, zone. That's oh, incredible. Wow. That's incredible. I didn't realize that. Wow. Um, tell us about your process. How did you locate these places? What kind of research you did ahead of time? And the approach that you took when you got there? At the time, there was a particular map that I think has now been integrated into several other tools for looking at sea level rise. Um, so I was consulting that map, and then I was going to the lo- those locations. I am very passionate about photographic color. So Um, I like to use the light at the end of the day when the light gets blue and the artificial light comes on. It's yellow and orange and that color to make really ordinary places beautiful. Like you want to look at them and you want to consider their, their future. That's interesting. I was thinking about like, you know, what aesthetically attracted you to yeah. to the waterfront. You've, you've spoken a little bit about that in terms of the time and the light and the colors. And, and when people see your pictures, they'll see how vibrant they are. I wonder, story-wise, what kind of stories did those sites attract you to? Most of your pictures as part of this project didn't feature people, Right. Um, so tell us, like, the narrative that you felt comes across from these these sites. I think you can read the built environment like a text, really. And it's, you know, the built environment um, that I'm looking at here is between the water and the land. And I think it says a lot about how we view the people that live there, what their lives are like, how we prioritize them. Well, and it's also interesting, you know, to think about... The, uh, the built environment is your subject, but also nature is your subject, right? And it seems to me that the waterfront is this kind of liminal space, this place of tension where um, these two things like sort of come into battle. And when we're talking about Sandy, one one of those things won <laughs> and, 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 the, and the other didn't. So I guess let's 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 talk a little bit about about Sandy. Uh, given that your work was already concerned with rising sea levels, and you had already photographed so many of these communities in for like two years essentially before Sandy hit, how did Sandy like a factor change your work? Yeah, Sandy was a total game changer. Um, my agenda was to localize the issue of climate change, and Sandy did that like a hundred times more than I ever could have. Right? I mean, it really brought it home. It really brought it to public consciousness in a way that I never could have. And at that time, I did begin uh, to expand the series and photograph in other places uh, around the country and a few international that are threatened by climate change. And the series also is changed to a long-term project, right? So the, the, the agenda became to document these places as they change over time, as they're facing this kind of really existential threat right? They have to change. I mean, and I think that's actually, to me, one of the really fascinating things about what's going on in the waterfront at this 
moment is with the transformation of the deindustrialized waterfront into places of leisure, but also places of private ownership and private residence, you see a building boom there. And it's in many of the places that are these zone one low-lying landfill built places and it's and you do wonder what the clock is on looking at how those values will change as storms like sandy become a more common yeah thing. i mean because this is a thing of where what is the priority of the land and the water right like this is what the land wants to be and this is what the water wants to be and who's factoring and this is what that, a developer wants yeah, it to yeah, be yeah yeah so yes. this is like clash um and and i think to your point some something's going to have to give right so i wonder you know what do you think photography is or the role of photographs are in kind of driving home this idea of of climate change i wish i thought that photography could make a big difference. I don't really, I don't think that it can um, help us move to the policies that we need to. That's a political process. What I do think photography can do is shift attention. So, you know, if you have 90 million photographs taken in Times Square every year, maybe we don't need another picture of Times Square. And you know, lower Manhattan is threatened by climate change, but I have no fear. Standard employers will figure out what to do, and they will have the resources to do it, whether that's to make their building more resilient or to move somewhere else. The issue is the communities that, you know, are underrepresented and how um, that's where I think photographers have a real power. I mean, you can decide what to shoot. In thinking about going back to a place that you had photographed after Sandy, there are two photographs that stand out to Julie and I of Coney Island, one that you took before and one that you took after. Tell us the story that that you wanted to convey here. Yeah, it's funny. In the before picture, I was really just going for the blue hour, right? Mm -hmm. The most perfect color, the water blue, the sky blue, just make it, make it beautiful. In the after uh, picture, that was the Saturday after the storm, and the beach from Brighton Beach to Coney Island, I think, was basically filled with a detritus from Breezy Point. So you had basic, basically people's homes, you know, their dressers and their even refrigerators and just their porches, like things that you could see was, were part of somebody's home, and they were they were all over the beach and. There was this moment when the clouds came over the beach and were really quite dark, and the sun lowered enough to be under them that it was really very symbolic of the future for coastal Brooklyn, for Coney Island, right? It was very uh, threatening. Um, and so it was, I think that is really what makes the picture not so much the stuff on the, on the beach. Tell us, um, I guess, one of the most surprising or unexpected results from photographing after Sandy. One of the results of the hurricane was it blew away barriers. So suddenly one could have access to areas that were private. So, for example, there was no longer a fence around the Revere Sugar Factory ruin. And there was also uh, access to the beach area or the cliff area behind the homes in Manhattan Beach. Because those are private homes, normally you can't get back there. But since all of them had been devastated and none of them were occupied, um, after the storm, one could walk 
along those cliffs behind the homes. And uh, one of the things you could clearly see was that there had been a boardwalk there. And I have I have photographs of this. You you can see the what would they be the planks, um, the cement, and the um, the things that would have held it in place. And I had heard a rumor that there had been a boardwalk, a public boardwalk, along Manhattan Beach until the early 60s when there had been severe hurricane damage and somehow what had been formally public became absorbed into the individual homeowner's property. It was but and astounding. Now, and then you found that visual, that basically that archaeological evidence of that boardwalk. Yeah, That's you can amazing. see it. Yeah, It's amazing. It's like kind of an amazing story. As we record this episode, the nation is reeling from two major climate events, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. And I, I wonder, um, you began this project seven years ago, significant Sandy five years ago. I, I wonder, looking forward, what do you see either in terms of your project ongoing or the efforts to kind of document and have us be more aware and conscious of rising sea level? Well, I would like to start by saying I was able to photograph in Houston in 2013, and I photographed in Florida this year, uh, both in Miami and Tampa. It's funny, when I went to Houston, I was going a lot on the sea level rise maps, and you know, you're 40 miles from the coast, so I was like, really? Are you sure? The thing that's so salient about Houston is the petroleum industry. We have a refinery in New Jersey and some other facilities, but they have 40 miles from the coast all the way to Houston. It, the scale of it is phenomenal. And I stayed, when I went there in Pasadena, I wanted to be close to the petroleum industry, and I was. There was a refinery out one window of the motel, and on the other side was a landfill. So I'm not surprised to hear that people are in these toxic floodwaters. So it's a terrible feeling to be there to look at these disasters and then they begin to unfold. I almost was just like, are you the harbinger of hurricanes? <laughs> You're just like, I was in Houston and I, I was in Miami. I'm like, where are you going so next? Like, funny. You need to know. I know. Well, I mean, I think what's actually, it's like to me, it's what's just more, maybe more interesting than you being like the, harbinger <laughs> the, of the Grim Reaper <laughs> is that you are actually the harbinger of hurricane damage. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, it didn't matter when Sandy was going to happen. What actually mattered was that you could see the origins of what was going to be the right. result of it. Do you know well, what I mean? I mean, and this so, is why I like the title Castles Made of Sand. I mean, I, I did catch the Jimmy reference, but it's also this kind of like, it's there, but then it could be gone the next day. Right. Like it's all solid, it needs but it's yeah, not. Yeah, right. And I, I think that that, you're not the harbinger of, of hurricanes, but like I think Julie said, you, you have an eye for places at risk right, at greatest risk, even when many of us kind of take for granted that these places will be there. And I think it's an imp important point that you time the beginning of the disaster before most of us see the, the beginning of the disaster, right? Or so even the you, consequences yeah, of the disaster, so like, right? For you, the disaster began with the landfill and the petroleum. That's right. right. Not with the hurricane. And I think that's really interesting. You began your project in 2010. Like, for you, the disaster had already begun. Well, 
And part of that is that the work that I did before Castles Made of Sand was a series called Brooklyn Brownfields, Toxie City, actually Toxie City, Brooklyn Brownfields, where I went to 55 sites in Brooklyn that were currently or at that time on the New York State list. And I was very aware of the legacy of industrial pollution. And most of the time, it's in the ground. It's not really a problem. But for example, the issue around the Gowanus is when there's flooding, right? And in Houston, when there's flooding, that's right. When the land brings up all that has been put into it, right? But also on an everyday level, I mean, anytime it rains yeah. <laughs> in New York, um, you know, our harbor is flooded with raw sewage because of our combined sewer system. It's just there's no... Um, separating or piecing out the implications of global sea rise and the implications of of an of an industrial legacy in cities around the country. But see, and that's why I mean the whole idea of like this is where the built environment meets the land, and again, this idea of like the land having agency or subjectivity in this discussion. Like no one is, no one is like everyone thinks that we can manipulate our way out of this. That the three of us are the only stakeholders in this conversation. No, there's a there's the environment that has its own stake in this conversation that is going to do what it's going to do, and I think that that's something that people haven't really come to terms well, with. Well, it's these two. I mean, we always like come back to like notions of hegemony um, but like it's these two massive invisible forces and one is the market that in New York is so heavily run by real estate and the other is nature <laughs> but they operate entirely differently right like this is just this kind of constant growth and growth and growth right. and by this I mean the real estate and then on this side it's the it is the environment that is capricious and silent but strikes with deadly force whenever it wants to uh, but also then is quickly forgotten by the majority of people even after five years later we continue to deal with the ramifications of Sandy Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us this increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. We're excited to talk with our colleague, Julie May, who is the managing director of BHS's Library and Archives. Julie was also the curator of an exhibition we put up four years ago, about a year after Hurricane Sandy, called Documenting Sandy. Julie, thanks for talking with us today. No problem. Thank you. Julie, tell us about your own experiences on October 29th, 2012, uh, both as a Brooklynite and an archivist. Well, I live in deep Flatbush. At least I think it's deep. I live in Ditmas Park, and this is far from the flood zones. And I live in, a, I, I think, a relatively new building. It was built in 1926 or something like that. So it's a pretty solid building. Nevertheless, I went to sleep that night thinking, I don't know what what I'm going to wake up to? Am I going to wake up in a few hours with, you know, the windows blown out or, or what? I don't. I had no idea. So I just I went to sleep, but I kind of crossed my fingers, and I woke up the next day, and it was kind of surreal because everything seemed okay. And of course, you know, it wasn't. My neighborhood was relatively unscathed. We had electricity. There was no flooding, and so I kind of. You know, I went 
I, you know, I went about my business and that meant I went to work. So because I cycled to work most, most every day, I, I wasn't really affected by the, the, the train schedules being messed up or, you know, no car services or whatever. I, I just rode my bike to work. <laughs> so I arrived at BHS and there were a few other people and, you know, seemingly you could just go to work and do your thing but of course I was really distracted I just could not focus on whatever it was I had on my to-do list for the day so we were sitting around in a group and I said we should probably go out and be decent humans um, and while we're at it we can document what mm -hmm. we see mm -hmm. and, and what we're doing so that's that's what we did and what did that entail well, you know, because my focus is photography, I I just suggested that we all go out and take photographs and we start a social media collection campaign. So I think all we did was establish a hashtag, if I remember correctly. And uh, so a number of the staff went out and photographed things that they were doing to help out and probably recruiting other people. And we also, I think, put a call, a call out via our newsletter or Twitter, Facebook, what have you. And we got some submissions through those um, those platforms as well. And I remember the early days of that feed, like downed trees, but also people bringing supplies to areas. And I, I don't know, the thing that I remember the most was, was Red Hook, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. The pictures of Red Hook being just utterly, utterly Parts of it just really looked like they were completely destroyed. So you said you you were kind of compelled to do this. Just you said be good humans, and I wonder how much of this, how much of your being an archivist, kind of informed this and in thinking of you know what is the responsibility of an archive, uh, an archival institution, or an archivist when faced with um, the immediacy of such an event of how to document it. Certainly, one of our areas of that we have a lot of information about in our archive is the built environment of Brooklyn. And I've been working with these collections a while, so I realized how important this is to researchers and how, you know, this is a continuum. You know, we have another event, maybe similar to the blizzard of 1888, mm -hmm. that would have a serious impact on, on what Brooklyn looks like. It seems just sort of understood or taken for granted that if something occurs in your in your subject area you should try to collect it. I think this is our first foray into collecting an event that occurred right now. Mm -hmm. And so we really I didn't really know what I was doing necessarily and I think being able to collect through social media seemed like uh, something easy to do and something that was within our resources to accommodate and accept. We didn't know how much we would get. You know, I think we got a good amount, not too much, not too little. But it seemed it seemed like we could we could handle this kind of project. In the best case scenario, let's say with all of the resources that, that you need at your fingertips, what kinds of things do you think would best document an event like Hurricane Sandy. Uh, you mentioned the blizzard of 1888. So mm -hmm. I'm just kind of thinking like what kinds of things do you think would be good to have in an archive of 
a similar event now that, say, a future scholar researcher would use? Well, I certainly, I think about this. I think photographs are great. I think everybody responds to photographs. And if it's a good photograph, you don't need words attached to describe what's happening. Um, and so in that regard, it's it's pretty good. But I can also see, and now since we've had so many more of these unfortunate events um, around the world, I can see how you might want to have... Um, I, I assume people uh, who own homes or or were, were affected in some way who have a legitimate claim to FEMA, they might want, you know, they have this packet of, mm-hmm. of documents. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a really interesting thing for historians to look at, you know, in retrospect. Of, of, it, and it, it indicates the level, the, the, the magnitude of the event and how extensively or unextensively FEMA responded or how well they responded or in comparison to this area and that area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those documents are probably very private. And I think we know some of these claims haven't yet been finalized. So they're, they're still in the, yeah, yeah. They're still in the yeah. possession of the yeah. people still trying to rebuild their homes or put them on stilts or whatever. So, you know, we can't, you know, we shouldn't really get those quite yet. But that kind of thing seems really important to articulate the structures that our federal, state, and local governments have in place to support community members in, a, in an event like this. I also think about the emergency response kind of in the community. There are people in the neighborhood who kind of corral people in an emergency, having those sort of leaflets and flyers, and all of these things to sort of comprehensively paint a a comprehensive picture Mm -hmm. of the event would be really great to have. It strikes me as you're talking that in a way there are almost two um, kinds of, of events or phenomena to archive. There's the actual storm itself, which is actually a relatively short uh, sort of moment in time, mm-hmm. um, which transforms the built environment in mm-hmm. a very particular way. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the recovery, which is a political thing, which is about community groups, which is about equity and lack of resources. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, um, you know, nature may not, you know, know the um, like the demographics of a neighborhood, but the rate of recovery certainly reflects that. And sure. so it's interesting also to think about a storm as a reflection of inequity and community organization and, and activism. Yeah, that that brings up another thing that we w- would have been great for us to collect is is oral histories, interviews of people either you know, forming these community groups to respond, to help out, or talking to people affected directly that I don't think that we, I know we didn't pursue that as part of this Documenting Sandy project, but that would have been excellent for us to have. This is where the practice of oral history really comes in handy because it does provide a really quick, efficient, immediate way of creating an archive when, you know, you don't have the resources to go through, like, the collecting, the formal collecting and processing of of materials. We certainly have seen, you know, with Occupy, there was desire to create an archive as it was happening, um, and that was, like, 2009. Um, but even with the 
2008 election, there was this like, oh, this is a historic thing. We need to document it, certainly in the last few years, whether it's like Ferguson or Baltimore or what have you. And so I wonder how has your profession or or colleagues, you know, how are they rethinking the work of what an archivist does? Well, my training as an archivist was to be objective, to collect both sides, to not color your description of a document in a way that would sway a researcher's opinion of, of what that document says. So that that's, that's essentially what, what we were trained to do. And since Occupy and since um, Black Lives Matter, the archivist profession has said, can we be objective? And the answer is no, we cannot. And And similarly, as a Brooklynite in the midst of this hurricane, could I be objective and separate myself from the the documentation of this storm and its aftermath? The answer is no. You know, when I sort of thought about doing this, it was selfish because I was like, I have the ability to go ride my bike to the Rockaways with toilet paper and paper towels and bleach to help people out who are just in shock in the midst of, oh my gosh, I've lost everything. Something I think is really interesting that's emerging out of this conversation is also it's like, of course, we can never be objective. And also our ability to sort of collect objectively is hindered by our resources. Right. So we would have loved to do, uh, you know, artifact collection, photograph collection, oral history collection, um, document collection related to Sandy. But did we have like the men on the ground, you know, like Mm -hmm. the boots on the ground to be able to implement that? No, not necessarily. And so we had to make some decisions about what we were able to do and not able to do. And we did the best that we could. But, of course, there are there are parts of the story that are inevitably missing, as is the case with every archival collection. Right. I think there are a lot of institutions who did a great job of collecting Sandy materials. And hopefully, you know, researchers of the future will be able to gather a comprehensive selection of materials to tell a story through multiple repositories. So the collecting that we did around Hurricane Sandy resulted a year later in an exhibition called Documenting Sandy, and which you amazingly put together on a very small budget in a very tight timeline. But the I think the thing that's notable about it is just how in- haunting a lot of the photographs are. They're both uh, documentary photographs, but they're also incredibly beautiful in your own way. Will you talk a little bit about, a little bit about that tension between these beautifully composed pictures and the devastation that they depict? When your environment sort of changes, you can't help but sort of appreciate the, the beauty in the landscape, whether it's pristine as you saw it the day before or whether it's devastated as you see it now. You know, it wasn't just the the people who were established photographers who had something important or um, something significant to show us through the photographs. It was also just the guy who lived down the street and happened to look out his window and take a photograph of something related to the storms. Five years later, both as a Brooklynite and as an archivist, what are you reflecting on? when you think back about documenting Sandy? Well, I guess I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we did it. Uh, just happy that we did it. <laughs> but I think 
it seems like since that storm has occurred, so many other storms have occurred. And so many other events have occurred that have tinged our built and social environments in a way that changes how we look at things that it seems an insurmountable task to to continue to document Brooklyn and the way that it changes moment by moment by moment. In this Voices of Brooklyn, we're going to listen to Pamela Harris, an assembly member of the New York State Assembly representing District 46. Pamela Harris has lived in the Coney Island neighborhood of Brooklyn all her life. She served as a corrections officer and retired in 2013. And she also founded an organization, a nonprofit organization for youth called Coney Island Generation Gap, which mentors youth using media arts. This interview took place in October 2013, just about a year after Superstorm Sandy had hit. So Assemblywoman Harris gives us a real eyewitness account of her experiences um, on October 29th, 2012. And a couple important aspects of context um, to provide to her really riveting story. I mean, the first is just about the Coney Island neighborhood in general. It's important to point out that, you know, you know, one in four residents of Coney Island are impoverished. The average Household in Coney Island is about $31,000 a year. So it's important to remember that while many neighborhoods got hit, um, their ability to recover was often directly related to um, the sort of the, the poverty levels in, mm-hmm. in those neighborhoods. I mean, and it's the, the, the numbers and the data for how Coney Island was damaged can be staggering. Um, Coney Island experienced flooding of waters as high as 10 feet. Mm. I think one really remarkable thing we'll hear Harris talk about is that the storm pushed about 272,000 cubic feet of sand inland. So it wasn't just a rushing of water. It was a rushing of sand, water traveled inland as far as 1.5 miles. So this really was, in a lot of ways, a, a perfect storm for Coney Island residences, as we're going to hear Harris describe. And I saw a rush of water coming from the ocean. And that wasn't a lot, a lot, but I saw it. And I ran downstairs and said to my husband, um, I just saw something. I don't think it's good. <laughs> Then I looked, we went outside and we could see the water coming. And then we looked to the bay and was like, yeah, that's not good. Mm -hmm. And then just almost, it seemed like in less than 10 minutes Mm -hmm. already, we had four feet of water um, before I can even get. So we get into and go start, go checking on my neighbors. Myself and my husband decided to, we decided to grab pumps and start pumping out our own home, thinking we're only going to get maybe four feet. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to look again, about 10 minutes after that, so now we're 20 minutes in, mm-hmm. I, I go to look and I see this back window blow out because mm-hmm. the wind now just started, you know, going crazy and it blows out. And I just look like, honey, just grab whatever we can grab, whatever cameras we can grab, whatever we can get. Couldn't take the TV, couldn't take the computers, couldn't take the games and let's just run up. But then as I go to run upstairs, I said, oh, shoot, Stu. So I go to knock at his door. But by that, by the time I go out the gate, I already had the water up to my waist. So in a matter of now it's maybe a half an hour, Mm -hmm. the water was already up to here. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm yelling, still, still, and I get no answer. So now I'm like literally losing my mind because, you know, he's our buddy. And then I, you know, I call the other neighbors. I'm getting phone calls. My sister's calling me. Everybody's calling me. And um, my neighbors, few of my neighbors are calling me. We want to come to your house kind of thing. And I'm like, you know, I, I can't get to you guys because the water's now too high. And I finally get a hold of Stu. I see him come out of his home, finally. So he goes, instead of coming out of his home and coming into here, because this is the last ditch effort that we think we can open the door and let him in, he goes into his truck instead. And me and my husband are screaming at him, Sue, what are you going in your truck for? It's going to float away. Now, because we're seeing cars floating up, up and down the blocks. We're seeing cars get stuck. I look to my husband and I say, why is Stu getting in his car? You know, so again, so now we're looking and we're seeing, we're hearing Transformers pop. I'm watching cars. I can see in the water where it's lighter in some spots. And I'm saying to my husband, honey, those are, I think those are transformers, you know, or something is popping in the water. Um, I look up at the poles and they're shaking. Trees are falling. And I'm like, the park, the trees in the park were just literally swaying. Like, you know, um, like someone, something was pushing it. Well, of course it was the wind that was pushing it, but they were literally swaying. I see cars in the park. I see cars come from that are floating down this way and floating into the park. And then the sand. When I see the sand coming, I'm like, wow. So the sand from the bay, um, the water picked up the sand and it's coming this way. So I see the sand and then I look this way and I still see water. It's like now it's gushing mm-hmm. and and. So um, we go to the window, we run up to the second floor. Well, we could, we had to, cause now maybe almost 45 minutes in this whole first floor is gone. Wow. Um, my backyard is gone. The whole first floor is just totally done. Mm-hmm. So we're up on the second floor and I'm yelling to Stu, Stu, you can't stay in your car. It's going to float away. Um, and sure as heck, five minutes later, his, uh, car gets totally engulfed water. It's uh, the and now the doors are opening. Electrical stuff is going haywire. The doors are opening by themselves. The back door is opening and closing by you know, you know because of the water. And he just literally floats out of his car. Now we have a fence in between us, and we have the awning in the front. Mm -hmm. He literally the water literally picks him up over the awning, and then drops him back into my yard. So we. Look at each other. I'm like, oh, God. Now he's 67 years old, and he's a big guy. So I I say, Lee, we got to get him in. Mm -hmm. So we go to the back. We grab the ladder from my other neighbor. We look at her. She's hysterically crying, her and her daughter. They're, like, hysterical. And I tell them, I tell my husband, I'll get them. You You get him. So my husband takes the ladder. He puts it in through our window on the second floor, which is about this it's like five different windows they're about this big each and he calls to me you got to come and help because now he can't get out to get Stu so I I tell the two in the back stay (laughs) my two my neighbor and her daughter just stay (laughs) and I run to the front my husband holds my feet and I'm out my whole front of my body is out down at the ladder and I'm pulling Stu up the ladder and we get him up the ladder 
in, at the window and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to turn him some kind of way to push him and squeeze him. Mm-hmm. He's about 300 pounds mm-hmm. to squeeze him into this. He's this big and the space that he's coming through is this big. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm looking and we're literally just squeezing him in and telling him to turn his foot this way. Turn your head that way. Move your arm up. <laughs> and we grab his pants and his shirt and we pull him in. And by doing so, it actually jars. My window gets kind of ajar. It, it just mm-hmm. comes off the... Then the wind is like blowing it too while I'm pulling him. And we get him in. Mm-hmm. We get him in and um, he's soaking wet. He's, you know, he's, his breathing is labored. And I'm just looking at him like, Stu, don't die on me. <laughs> That's one. Mm-hmm. Two, I'm giving you my pink bathrobe and I will never, ever wear it again. <laughs> So we get him and he's okay. You know, we get him to calm down. He's okay. And I, I run. I saw all oh, the neighbors. So I run to the back. I grab the other two. We help them over from their yard to our yard and bring them in. Mm-hmm. And um, we just kind of sit and just keep watching the water uh, for the, almost the remaining of the night. Fall is almost here. The weather's going to start cooling down. And it's, it's my favorite time of year. Is it really? Yeah. It's mine I too. Love this. I love like I think a, it's because it's like a back to school feeling. I love like a, like a farmer's market on a fall weekend. Yeah. Anyway, come into BHS and see some of our amazing evening programs after you stop by your farmer's market and pick your kid up from school. Come on over and um, check out our amazing roster of evening programs, which I know Zaheer is very excited about. What are you going to be attending? Yeah, you know, there's just so many so many great programs going on, um, so it's always hard to just pick one. But one that I want to highlight is, I think, really standing out to me is an upcoming conversation between Rick Perlstein and Linda Gordon uh, about her latest book, called The Second Coming of the KKK, The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s in the American Political Tradition. Her book takes an in-depth look at the roots and ramifications of the KKK's 1920s resurgence. And given its 2017's resurgence, I think this is going to be a really important conversation to witness. And that's taking place Thursday, October 26th at 6.30 p.m. It's $5, but free for members. So like we always say, and hopefully by now you have your membership to BHS because there is like... Uh, there's always great programming available for members. And Julie, you are doing not just one, but three programs coming up that are really special. Tell us about your upcoming events. Yeah. Another thing to celebrate this fall is the 100th anniversary of women getting the vote in New York State. So this was passed on a state level in New York um, in November of 1917. And to celebrate, I will be moderating a series of three conversations with some really remarkable women. Um, The events are taking place um, on Wednesday, November 1st. 
And then another, again on Monday, November 6th, and then on Wednesday, November 8th, we'll, we will link to all of these in our show notes. And I am lucky enough to get to sit down with people like historian Deborah Gray White. I get to talk to Christine Quinn. I get to talk to the amazing Jamia Wilson from um, Feminist Press and a roster of other really amazing women to talk about what it means to be a woman and political in this day and age. And with this episode of Flappish in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guests, Robin Michaels and Julie May. You can learn more about Flappish in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flappish dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Learn more about him at josephsehloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. 